let's uh, open our Bibles again at Amos chapter 3 as we, we study it together, uh, God's Spirit enabling us. Uh, there was an interesting experiment conducted a few years ago in New York City. Uh, a group of white uh, middle-class residents were presented with a picture of people on a subway. Uh, two men were in the foreground. One was a white man, the other one was black. One wore a business suit. One was clothed in workman's overalls. Uh, one of the men was giving his money to the other, who was threatening him with a knife. Now, in actual fact, it was the, the black man who wore the suit, and it was he who was being robbed by the, the man, the white man, in the overalls. But interestingly, the, the, that picture didn't square with the prejudices of the viewers. And to them, uh, white men were executives and wore suits. Black men were blue-collar workers. Black men were robbers. Whites were victims. And so when they were asked what they saw, they reported what they wanted to see, what their mind told them, that a black laborer was assaulting a white businessman. And, you know, it's very easy for us to see and to believe what we want to see and believe. For example, I'm always amazed that people get taken in by the, the prosperity gospel peddlers. You know, you have somebody, somebody comes over from America with a name like Creflo Dollar, which kind of says it all. You know, he comes with his private jet and his bling. And people go and hear him. And that's, that's astonishing. Uh, you know, there's so little credibility behind this kind of thing, and yet people want what he's saying to be the case. They, they want to believe that uh, more faith means more money and, and uh, healing for their, their illness. They just see what they want to see. But our own spiritual condition is also like that. That, that verse from Jeremiah that we were talking about, uh, the heart... Uh, is deceitful above all things. That's so true of us, is it not? That often uh, we don't see things as they truly are. We want to believe that we're doing well. We don't want to believe that we need to repent. And we think when we hear some of the hard parts of God's Word that it must be for somebody else. It's for somebody uh, sitting in another part of the church or for somebody that's being obnoxious at work, or whoever it is, but certainly not me. And that is why, it's very likely why at least, that we have uh, chapter 3 in Amos. In chapters 1 and 2, Amos has brought God's judgment on the nations. So he's started out with the nations that surrounded uh, Israel, and then to the delight of his hearers, Remember, they are the northern Israelites from the ten tribes, uh, the ones that broke away from Jerusalem. To their delight, he starts giving judgment, God's judgment, on Judah, the two tribes that stayed with Jerusalem. And then their attitude changes uh, when, as they are stirred, still purring contentedly with what they're hearing, he launches this missile that gets under the radar and launches judgment on the people of Israel. 
And it's very likely, very likely, that the people simply didn't believe him. They probably thought that uh, they weren't so bad by the standards of the day. They were carrying on with a sort of worship. Uh, they were very prosperous. Uh, they had never had it so good. That had to be a sign of God's favor. Militarily, they were strong. Jeroboam, uh, as well as Uzziah, down in Judah, had built up the army. And some of the cities were now strongly fortified. They had religion going on. There was a sacrifice being made at Bethel and Dan. So, surely, what God is saying could not apply to them. And the purpose of chapter 3 is to reinforce the warning. The purpose is to break through the deception that says, things are different with me. This could never happen to me. And Amos addresses their self-deception and gets under the radar by first of all pointing out that the covenant itself that they think protects them actually obliges God to judge them. And then he talks about the certainty that accompanies God's warnings. And then lastly he speaks of the comprehensiveness of the judgment, the judgment that falls on every aspect of life in Israel. So first of all, there's this matter of the covenant, the covenant that demands justice. Verses 1 and 2 is classic Amos, classic Amos. Uh, he, he draws in the people so that they feel comfortable, and then he throws them a curve, as it were. He gets uh, them on the blind side. Hear the word of the Lord. Hear this word the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family I brought up out of Egypt. You only have I chosen of all the families of the earth. My, they're thinking, there's some nice stuff coming up. God is speaking to us uh, so tenderly. We're his chosen people. We're the people he brought up out of Egypt. Therefore, I will punish you for all your sins. The logic of the covenant is exactly the opposite. It's going in the opposite direction to which they expected it. Amos is describing their privileges in the strongest of terms. Uh, he says that they are the whole family I brought up out of Egypt. They had had such blessing from God. They had been helpless in Egypt. They had been slaves in Egypt. God had redeemed them, purchased them by blood, delivered them from the hand of bondage. And Israel had been trained by the experience of, of the Exodus to know that this is how God works. He purchases his people out of bondage. He redeems them. This is how salvation works. And they had been a redeemed people. They were blessed in that way. And then there was a, the, the sense in which they were chosen. Now, the, the Hebrew word uh, is actually stronger even than, than chosen. This is a, a, a right translation. But it, it really is literally, you only have I, uh, have I known of all the families of the earth. And it's a very intimate word. It's a very physical word. Uh, it's the word that is used of the, the knowledge between a husband and a wife. Genesis 4.1, Adam knew his wife Eve and she conceived. Uh, so it's speaking of an intimate 
relationship. This was Israel's privilege of being in covenant with God. And so you can imagine that the, the hearers are expecting God to deliver some good news, uh, to pat them on the back and say, well done, uh, you're the covenant people, you've got all the blessings. No, God doesn't say that at all. God says, therefore I will punish you for all your sins. See, the, the covenant uh, is, is two-edged. The covenant uh, is, is God graciously coming to people and graciously uh, making a commitment to them. And God says, uh, I will be your God and you will be my people. Now therefore keep my law. And if you keep my law, you will be blessed. But if you don't keep my law, if you're covenant breakers, you will be cut off and you'll come under the curse of the covenant. So there is a logic in the covenant that requires judgment. The Ten Commandments are so interesting because the way that they are framed in Exodus 20 is law given to a redeemed people, the preamble. God is speaking to the people that he took out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, up out of the land of slavery. You're redeemed. Therefore, these are your obligations. These are your covenant obligations. These ten words that God gives to them. Coming into a special relationship with God means that we are saved to serve. Saved to produce fruit. Now, we all know, we've been Christians for any length of time, we know that we're not saved because of our obedience. We're saved by grace, free grace. But that grace produces fruit. It has to. And there are so many warnings in the Bible against people who thought that if they simply were... Uh, if they had the trappings of religion, if they were formally in the covenant, then they could live as they wanted to. And near to Amos's time, when eventually the, the northern tribes would go into exile, uh, there were those who thought that Judah would be safe because she had the temple. And so uh, the warning has to come to Jeremiah not to trust in the temple. This is the... Uh, do not trust in deceptive words and say, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Here's something that we can see, something that reminds us we are special people, we're in privilege. But these people aren't living as God's people. They're living as covenant breakers. So there's no point in trusting in the temple. The temple won't save you, just as a church doesn't save you. Then you come to the New Testament, and we have that, that really... Uh, feisty letter James, reminding us of the, the danger of not producing fruit that evidence work or evidence faith. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? And then characteristically, James goes on uh, to put it into to very practical, concrete terms. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, uh, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs. What good is it? In the same way, faith itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. So here's the logic. Yes, you're in the covenant. 
but you're covenant breakers. And therefore, the covenant brings covenant curse. You will be punished for your sin. It's a warning. God's warning the people to turn again and to repent. So, having given warning from the covenant, uh, we have this kind of interesting section uh, where we have things paired up, cause and effect. And Amos is saying here uh, that there are two truths that they need to get hold of. Two truths which would be generally accepted by Jews in their day, but not so much accepted by modern uh, men and women. Uh, the first of these is that history is in God's control. And the second is that God's spokesmen, the prophets, speak only what God has told them. So there's this uh, build-up to uh, a double climax with all these illustrations. So two people uh, walk together, but they only walk together if they're in agreement, if they have friendship. Lion doesn't attack unless prey is sighted. He doesn't growl contentedly in his den unless he's devouring the prey. A bird is only ensnared if a trap's been set. A spring snare only goes off if something's entered the trap. And so Amos uh, comes up to the first climax. He says, consider disasters that are going on, disasters that have happened, disasters that are, are coming. I'm probably referring to the earthquake that's two years away at this point. When disaster comes to a city, has not the Lord caused it? People don't like that today. People like to think that God causes nice stuff. God causes things to go well. I'm not so sure about disaster in the city, they say. Now, Amos clearly expects the answer uh, no to this, uh, that there's no disaster without God uh, having ordained it. Now, God is the God who ordains whatever comes to pass. He is the first cause behind everything. Now that, of course, doesn't mean that there aren't subsequent causes, second causes. So that if you have a collapsing building, for example, the second cause is the fact that they were maybe shoddy builders. They didn't pay much attention to what they were doing. They cut corners and the building collapsed. But we have also to say that God had ordained that. He knew that it would come about. We're not in a random universe. Uh, God isn't taken by surprise. And things that happen which are tragic are there to warn us. There to warn us. So, modern people, when, when we read this, there's a challenge to us. How do we read history? How do we read the events in the world around us? Do we see them the way the Bible presents them? Or not? If God's judgments are abroad in the earth, then... What should we be doing? Amos is going to go on in chapter 4 to speak about some of the things that were happening uh, in Israel in which God was warning the people and they, they should have observed and they should have drawn the right conclusions that God was actually speaking to them in warning. So that's uh, history and events. And, and similarly with 
the prophet and what the prophet says. The lion has roared. Who will not fear? The sovereign Lord has spoken. Who can but prophesy? In other words, Amos is saying that he hasn't, uh, he hasn't spoken to Israel in this way because, you know, he just woke up one morning and, and uh, wrote down something he had dreamt about. Uh, this isn't something he's concocted. The lion, Yahweh, has roared. The lion, Yahweh, has laid a burden on his prophet. He cannot do anything but speak. Woe to Amos if he does not share what God has given to him. The cause and effect. God has spoken. Amos must deliver what God has given to him. And the prophet must speak because God's giving a warning. A warning that will be a call to people to sit up, take notice, and respond. Respond in repentance. So that takes us to verse 9, to the end, where Amos is telling the people just what God will do in judgment. And we've got this uh, interesting verses in verse 9 and 10, where some of the most obnoxious neighbors are called in to witness the goings-on in Samaria people of Ashdod represent the Philistines. Philistines think Goliath, think ancient enemies of Israel. Egypt is called in. Uh, Egypt, you know, time and time again uh, opposed to Israel. Uh, Israelites and slavery, bricks without straw, all that stuff. So Philistines and Egyptians, God is saying to them, come and have a look. Get up on the mountains round Samaria and look at what's going on in Samaria. Come and witness this dreadful state of affairs. Assemble yourselves on the mountains of Samaria. Now in the main, we don't want the world to see some of the tragic failures that take place in the church from time to time. Our spirit should, should always be that of David. Remember when, when Saul and Jonathan fell in Mount Gilboa? He didn't want there to be a courier telling the world about what happened. What did he say? Tell it not in Gath. Proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines be glad. Christian failure should be mourned over in privacy, not in the glare of publicity. But here we have a picture for a different reason. Here we have Philistines and Egyptians being shocked at the goings-on in Samaria. And it's, it's a reminder that sometimes the, the double life within the church is such that those outside have more sense of right and wrong sometimes or at least you'll come across an occasion more humanity common humanity outside the church now that's that's not the ordinary and regular pattern but it is sometimes the case 
What do they see? These Philistines and Egyptians, the great unrest within and the oppression among her people. So the site's one of a society that's out of joint. Uh, the, the words express the ideas of, of panic and chaos in Samaria, violence, disorientation. This is in a mess. And why is it in a mess? Because they do not know how to do right. Oh, they've lost the plot completely. And as a consequence, God is going to come, and this is the warning now, the warning to Israel, God will come and he will judge. And God is going to come and he will judge the very things that made Israel complacent. The very things that uh, Israel had been looking to and resulted in her saying, couldn't be us, not me, <laughs> somebody else. Why was she saying that? Well, first of all, because she was a military power. The Lord warns there is no point in relying on the strongholds nor on the fortified places because they will be torn down. An enemy. Historically, this is talking about the Assyrians who, who came in, in 722 BC. They will run over the land. He will pull down your strongholds and plunder your fortresses. We don't have military might to beguile us, but sometimes we think, you know, um, we think of our strength, you know, we feel, we feel strong, you know, we, we still have energy, we think that we can, we can uh, get through life on our own resources. Sometimes we, we live, we go about life as though we were going to live forever, rather than in the reality that we're dependent upon God for every breath that we take. So, Israel's military might will be judged, and judged in a comprehensive way. Verse 12 has got this, it's a picture taken from shepherding. Uh, if a shepherd lost a lamb, it's expected that losses are inevitable. So, if you were working for somebody else, uh, if you had an estate owner that, that employed you, the shepherd would, would come back and would give a token of the loss. You know, if, if the, the, the lamb had been savaged by a bear, for example, uh, then there would be a remnant of the lamb. You would have a, a, a piece of the ear, perhaps, or the tail, and you took that back uh, to, to the boss to show that you hadn't actually uh, nicked the lamb yourself. The lamb wasn't lost because you had taken it. No, the lamb had genuinely been... Uh, killed by a wild beast. And it's the, that's the picture that we have of, of the Israelites. They're left as a tiny remnant uh, on the edge of a bed or the corner of a couch. So even their, their wealth, you know, the couches and inlaid beds will only be a remnant as well at the end. So Israel will be judged in the might on which she relied, uh, she'll be judged as well on the, the formalized religion on which she relied, because there was religion going on. Uh, it hadn't become an atheist state. When, it, when the separation began, 
uh, Jeroboam the first, not this king, but the, uh, his predecessor, he had set up a rival sanctuary to Jerusalem in Bethel, which was near the border with the southern kingdom. And the idea was that Bethel was so close that some of the, the people of Judah would be tempted to, to cross the border uh, and worship at the, the sanctuary that, that the king of, of, of Israel or Samaria had provided. So there was a sanctuary in Bethel and there was a sanctuary in Dan and the golden calf was there. And uh, again, with these things, it wasn't to say they were necessarily uh, worshipping a, a calf. This was supposed to direct them to something higher. But it was a, it was a mixed up religion and it was unauthorised religion. Uh, but it was a religion that gave them a false confidence. And specifically, there's mention of God uh, destroying the, the altar, the horns of the altar. Now, the horns of the altar were where the blood was, was applied. When you sacrifice something, you, you applied the blood to the horns of the altar. Amos is saying there won't be any recourse to atonement. You needn't think that you're going to find... Uh, that through relying on this altar, the horns of the altar, that things will be well for you. And there'll be no safety because the other significance of the horns of the altar was that if you were fleeing from somebody, you could come and you could lay hold of the horns of the altar in the temple and you could have sanctuary there. Uh, nobody would assail you so long as you had laid hold of the horns on the altar. And all these things God says, I'm going to sweep them away. There's no point in you relying upon them. This outward, this formal religion will not save you in the day of judgment. Israel, be warned. Your strongholds will be torn down and your false sanctuaries will be no sanctuary to you. And then lastly, material wealth. Verse 15 uh, is reflecting just the opulence that there was in Israel. Now, the Bible never, never condemns wealth as wealth. It's, it's condemned here because we know that the wealth was on the back of oppression. Uh, these people were wealthy because the, 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 the poor, if you like, the, the ordinary working people were exploited. Uh, and there were these huge, uh, there's a gulf in, in people's uh, living standards. And therefore, the summer houses and the winter houses... The second homes inlaid with ivory and with all the cedar wood will be swept away. No point in relying upon your bank balance, God is saying, in the day of judgment. Material wealth will be swept away. Wealth. How do we apply this to ourselves? How, how, do, we, how do we see the intense relevance of, of a word spoken uh, in the 8th century BC to ourselves. Surely we, we have to, to be aware of, of the danger, the danger that's in my heart, as it is in your heart, of deceiving ourselves, self-deception. Our hearts will always be inclined to tell us that everything is okay with ourselves. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verses 11 and 12 that judgment on God's people in the past happened 
for our current warning. You know, this is not just intriguing history. You know, it's nice to know about Israel in the 8th century. It's there for our warning. Paul says that is the purpose of the historical books. They're there for our warning. These things happen to them as examples, he says, and were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. Application? So, if you think you're standing, beware lest you fall. Wow. Isn't that humbling? Isn't that really humbling? All of us need to, no matter how, how firm we think we are in the Christian faith, we need to walk so humbly before God because if we think we're standing, we might just be before our great fall. How dependent we need to be on the Lord. And therefore, we should take to heed any, any warning sign from God. So, if God is indeed ordering history and bad things can come as warnings, then if bad things come across our path, surely uh, we ought to examine ourselves to see if indeed it is a warning to us, a, a, a judgment uh, to, to drive us to the cross that we might confess our sin for some wrongdoing in our lives. If we come across a scripture that's challenging sin, then we ought to see if that prophetic word is addressing any part of my life. You know, if there's some area of my life, or my ministry, or your life, or your workplace, activity, or whatever it is, God may be placing his finger on that through the word. And, and there's a converse, there's a kind of flip side. We should be quick to, to make these steps of self-examination uh, when difficulties cross our way or where we come across uh, parts of the Bible that speak of judgment and so on. We, we should look at ourselves and we should be quick to do that. And equally, we should be slow to draw conclusions about others. That's actually, it's actually usually the other way about, isn't it? We're usually quick to, to make inference in regard to other people. God's judging them. How ugly that is. How ugly that is. That's actually judgmentalism. You know, when we come to conclusions about others where we don't know the full story, where we have no access to God's attitude, uh, as Amos has. Amos is speaking from God. To make judgment in these circumstances is judgmentalism. I came upon a nauseating piece of judgmentalism recently in relation to a, a, a tragedy it had befallen. And uh, it was just so sad to see someone try to make capital of this. Let's heed God's warning. Let's, let's be careful lest we indeed fall. And then finally... We, we finished noticing Amos's emphasis on the practical fruit of faith. This is a wonderfully practical letter, and we're going to see that more and more. It's repeatedly calling us to, to be concerned for the oppressed, 
to speak out uh, on behalf of those uh, who are being treated unjustly. God is not looking, in other words, for lengthy prayers or clever Bible studies as a mark of genuine consecration. But he is looking for signs of true humility, for compassion, a heart to relieve the plight of the oppressed. So, knowing that our hearts are deceitful, let us seek to hear God speak to us and respond in practical ways to whatever it is he is saying, that together we might be a family of practical Christians. May God bless to us his word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, the ministry of Amos. Thank you, Lord, that uh, you called him out of his ordinary employment where no doubt he found much enjoyment. And you made him steadfast to declare your whole truth. Help us to receive your truth, Lord. May it search our hearts and minds. And may we respond with humility and repentance where we need to. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.